Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We are in Exodus chapter 20 this morning, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 for quite a few weeks because we're beginning a new series of sermons here at First Presbyterian Church on the Ten Commandments. And we're calling this series, The Good Life, Relating to God and People Through the Ten Commandments. And as I've been just doing some preliminary study on this, I have just already been... uh, positively and challengingly raked over the coals. I've come to see uh, an aspect of God's holiness and an aspect of my sinfulness that was not quite as apparent as it was before I started to undergo this study. But I've also begun to see just deep, deep measures of God's grace as well. And that's what I'm really hoping happens. We're going to see some very practical ways in which God exposes us, but also ways in which God heals us and redeems us and grows us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend several weeks exploring the Ten Commandments here at First Pres, and I'm, something I'm excited to do with you. But we can't explore the Ten Commandments and actually do any measure of justice to it if we don't get the first two verses down, which are actually not part of the Ten Commandments. They're the preamble to the Ten Commandments, and that's what we're going to be focusing our attention on today. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. That kind of sets the pace for the whole Ten Commandments. So what we're going to do now is we're going to read... Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21, just to get a whole picture of it, but we're going to focus our attention mainly this morning on verses 1 and 2. So with all of that in view, let's take a moment now to read God's word from Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. 
Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. This is God's word to us this morning. One of the things uh, that happens to you as a minister of the gospel on Sunday mornings is that you disperse after the worship service and people come up to you and talk to you. And most of the time they say very kind things. They kind of massage your ego a little bit and, and say a whole bunch of wonderful things. But every now and then someone throws you a curveball. And that's exactly what happened to me a few years ago. I think it was in my first or second year of ministry. I was assisting in worship. And I was doing exactly what Blake was doing this morning. I was leading the congregation through the time of confession and assurance of pardon. And I was praying before the church and I was confessing to God on behalf of the church that we had failed to obey him and we had failed to, to do our Christian duty. And so after the, church, after the service, as everybody was meeting and greeting and saying hello to one another, this one man came up to me and he said, I want to challenge you never to use the word duty ever again with regard to our relationship with God. Never use the word duty because Jesus has already accomplished our duty for us. So there is no more duty left for us to perform with regard to our relationship to God. And so I was a little bit taken aback by that and I said, okay. I think I'm going to have to think about that a little bit. And I did, and I went home, and I thought about it, and I concluded that in order for us to remove all notion of duty from the Christian faith, we would have to cut out massive portions of the Scriptures. We would just have to completely eliminate it, because duty, in many respects, is part and parcel of the Christian life. There's a duty aspect to it. And my hunch is that those of you who are a little bit more seasoned people who were probably born before the baby boomer generation are people who are going to resonate pretty strongly with that word duty because one of the things that was acutely prominent in your generation was a sense of duty, a sense of responsibility, a sense of obedience and honor and things like that. Those were just part of the undercurrents of your cultural values at the particular time. Of course there were exceptions, but by and large that was the case. But then the 1960s happened, didn't they? And there was something that changed in the 60s because the 60s taught us to question authority and to not trust anybody over the age of 30. And it taught us to declare our autonomy from a set of rules that we found to be somewhat capricious and enslaving. And it was kind of in that vein that the great theologian Mick Jagger wrote his famous song, I'm free to do what I want. You know Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. I'm free to do what I want any old time. I'm free to get what I want any old time. That came out of the 1960s. There was another group called The Animals that sang a song called It's My Life. And it goes, It's my life and I'll do what I want. It's my mind and I'll think what I want. Both of those songs came out in the same year, 1965. So there was a massive cultural change that happened. A few years earlier, a man by the name of Douglas MacArthur gave a speech before the cadets at West Point. 
And it was his famous duty, honor, and country speech. And just a few years later, a speech like that would have fallen on deaf ears in many respects because there had been such a shift from duty and responsibility and honor and obedience. And the shift was to autonomy, to independence, to freedom, to authenticity. See, part of the reason why Christianity has moved in our culture from a place of privilege and a place of respectability to moving from that spot over to a place of being seen as irrelevant at best and probably bigoted at worst is because of the demands for holiness that God places upon his people. That he demands his people follow after him and walk with him and mirror him in many respects. God comes to his people and he says, I am the Lord your God. We don't call people Lord anymore. We don't crown people the Lord of life as we sang this morning or the Lord of love. We don't do that because to do that, to have a Lord over our life, assumes that someone else has some sense of authority over us to tell us what we are to believe and how we are to live. And so that creates a huge point of friction, not only in our life with regard to our relationship with God, but in our life as it intersects with the world. Christianity is seen in so many respects as intolerant or bigoted as a result of that. And in many respects, the point of friction where this all kind of takes place is the Ten Commandments. It's the point where we just read Because our culture does not like people telling you what you are to believe and how you are to live. And that's what the Bible actually does. The God of the Bible tells you that. And if there's anything that's going to receive kickback in our culture, it is that. It's viewed as intolerant, which is really one of the only remaining sins that our culture actually ascribes to. Now, before those of you who consider yourself to be somewhat devoted followers of Jesus Christ begin to roll your eyes at the idea that Christians are intolerant, I think it's probably wise that we sit back and consider there might be a little bit of justification for that accusation that we receive. Because there is something remarkably unattractive about a person who prides himself in his morality who looks to his morality and compares himself to everybody else he knows and takes the the self-righteous position in regards to them. A person who takes great pride in the fact that he doesn't drink, smoke, or chew or go with those who do and who externally keeps a whole bunch of rules but on the inside is very cold and very darkened and very rigid and very self-righteous. And quite frankly, we have to admit that a lot of Christianity comes off that way. And so it's no wonder why it's revolting to so many people in our culture. And if that's what duty means, then I don't want any part of it. And I hope that you don't either. Because that's not duty at all. That's just pure, unhinged legalism. It's a different religion altogether to dock your ship on your own morality and take great refuge in how well you keep the law. It's measuring your life by your own perceived morality in light of everybody else's as the basis upon which, or at least part of the basis of which, you stand before God. It's a different religion altogether. And it leads you to the same exact place at the end of the day as the person who completely rejects God's commands altogether. 
But at the same time, we can't throw out ideas such as duty and obedience. They are clear in Scripture. My friend who confronted me on that was actually incorrect because duty and obedience are there. And we can't throw it out in the name of freedom. Because if you throw out duty, duty and obedience and the name of freedom, you actually prevent yourself from enjoying the freedom that God intended you for, to enjoy. To actually say, I'm free to do what I want any old time is actually enslaving when it's all said and done. So when you look at Scripture, you discover that all of us, every single one of us, are created in the image of God. We're created by Him and we're created in His image. And that means that we only work the way that we were designed to work and we only enjoy the freedom that we were designed to enjoy to the degree that we live in the way that He's called us to live. Let me just give you an example of this. One of my very first cars that I owned was a 1980 Mercedes-Benz 300 SD turbo diesel. It was a Mercedes, but it was old as dust, and it was a bucket of bolts, and it had like 200,000 miles on it. It went zero to 60 in like an hour. It was just the, the slowest car in the world. Every time you floored it, there would be a plume of smoke that would come out of the back that looked like Hiroshima just happened right behind the car. It was that kind of car. Well, I was driving it one day, needed to get gas, pulled into the gas station, just did the mindless thing of putting the, tank in the, the, the gas pump in the car, filling it up, and driving away. Well, the next morning, I got up to head out of the house put the key in the ignition, turned it, and nothing happened. There was no noise, there was no cranking, there was just absolutely nothing that happened. So I called AAA and had them haul the car off to the mechanic, and a little bit later that day, I got a phone call. And the mechanic said, Mr. Stone, the reason why your car isn't working is because you put unleaded gas in a diesel car. Yeah, exactly. Ooh, that's how I felt as well. So a few hundred dollars later and a new tank of diesel gas, I was finally on my way. But I felt like the most colossal village idiot that ever hit town that day because of what I had done. But here's the point. The point is that when we put stuff into our lives that violates the way in which we were created to live, then we self-destruct we don't work right. We're violating our design. And friends, I promise you that if you dock your life upon something other than God as the source of your own identity, as you worship and serve whatever that object is, I promise you that it will enslave you. I promise you that it will only bless you to the degree that you keep every single one of its commandments perfectly and to the degree in which you fail it, it will bring you curses. It will mess up your life. Kids, I promise you that dishonoring your parents will not make your life better. I've tried it. It doesn't work. I promise you that your life will not be better by sucking internet pornography right out of the computer all the time, or committing that affair, or coveting someone else's body, or life, or 
money or material things or anything like that. It will not make your life better. It will destroy you and it will mess up your life potentially for generations to come. Because that's not how we're designed to live. See, part of the reason why I'm calling this series through the Ten Commandments the good life is because the life of contentment and freedom and joy doesn't come by throwing off God's law. It comes by actually embracing it. Look, if, if the doctor tells you to take a certain medicine when you're sick, he's not trying to make your life miserable, even if that medicine tastes like Pennzoil. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He's trying to make you well. He's trying to make you better. He's trying to make you healthy so that you will enjoy life and so that you will be able to do the things that free people are able to do. And it's like God is saying, look, this is what I've created you for. I've created you for joy. I've created you for contentment. And because that's the case, you need to do what I'm telling you to do. You need to reflect my image as you go about doing the ordinary mundane things in life. You need to avoid the things that I'm telling you to avoid because I know what I'm talking about. I created you. And I created you so that you would have joy and that you would have it fully. And so that's part of the reason why I'm calling this the good life, because God, believe it or not, has actually created us partially for joy. But there's another reason why he's created us, and there's another meaning that I have when I'm talking about the good life. And the good life is also a life that honors and glorifies God. It's a life that lives before the face of God, aware of his presence, aware of his power, aware of his holiness and glory and beauty and truth and living in light of that, living in light of the image in which he has created us, but also living in light of the promises that he's given to us in the gospel. One of the things I try to do with Sarah, our four-year-old, every night before we put her to bed, is to do our children's catechism questions. Sarah just calls them her questions. And those of you who have young children who are at least... I guess two years old and up, it's worthwhile to do this. They love to memorize these things and it instills gospel grace and truth into their life at a very young age. And so if you want one of those little catechism booklets, I have it on my desk out in front of my office and you're welcome to go ahead and take one with you afterwards. But here's the point on all that. The first four questions hit on the most essential things that we need to know in life. The first question asks, who made you? God. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. How do you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. That tells us something wildly profound in in language that a two-year-old can understand. That we've been created by God. And we've been created by God for his glory. And we express our love to God by loving him and doing what he commands, which is exactly what Jesus said when he said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So we show that we love God by whether we eat, drink, or whatever we do, doing it all for his glory. But you know, I have to say this, there's a correlation, a connection between glorifying God and enjoying him. 
they actually fit perfectly together. Those of you who know anything about the Westminster Shorter or Larger Catechism know the first question. The chief end of man, what is our chief purpose in life? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So you can't glorify God without enjoying Him. And you cannot enjoy God without glorifying Him. They're two sides to the same coin. They fit together. And so that's what the good life is all about. The good life is about glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. And that reality right there, my friends, leads us right back to the first two verses that we read this morning in Exodus chapter 20, the prologue to the Ten Commandments. We're going to spend the next several weeks looking at the Ten Commandments, but whenever we look at a particular commandment that day, we're always going to read Exodus 1 and 2. We're always going to read the prologue. Because if you don't get Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 down, at the very level of your soul, you are going to miss the entire point. You're going to miss the entire point completely. You're going to turn Christianity into a bunch of rules that you're supposed to follow when that's not ultimately what it's all about at all. It's going to pervert what Christianity is all about. See, in the gospel, God calls his people to holiness and obedience and faithfulness. He calls them to Christian duty but unlike every other religion and every other worldview and every other philosophy that's out there, our obedience does not lead us to heaven or nirvana or self fulfillment or self actualization or anything of the sort. See, even the most secular, irreligious person on the planet and the most rigidly legalistic person on the planet are at the end of the day both looking to the very same thing as the source of their identity. They're looking to their own native strength and their own power within themselves to accomplish the desired end that they have in life, something that will make themselves better. They're looking to the power within themselves, whether they are way out to the left or way out to the right, whether they're wildly legalistic or completely licentious. But Christianity has a different message for us, doesn't it? Christianity looks to a hope outside of itself. Outside of our individual selves, there's a hope that exists. And that hope exists in the person who loved us and gave himself for us. Our freedom, my friends, is accomplished not by us. It's accomplished by God for us. Christianity brings the message that we just read this morning where we see that God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. That's what's going on here in Exodus chapter 20. Moses had been speaking to the people. He was the mediator between God and Israel. And everything that Moses said on behalf of God was as authoritative as if God was saying saying those words himself. But on this particular case, he gathers all his people to Mount Sinai and he says, I'm going to speak directly to the people. This is going to be something that is going to be etched upon their hearts and upon their minds. And he comes and he says, look, 
I am the Lord your God. I have absolute authority over you because I have created you. And because of that, you have duties that you are to perform to me. But remember this and never forget it. I am the Lord your God who released you from 400 years of bondage to the Egyptians. 400 years of hopelessness and helplessness and being dehumanized. I've released you from that. Slavery was part of your DNA. Slavery was branded into your soul, but I brought you out of it. And I brought you out of it purely by my grace, not because of anything that was so great within you. You're all a bunch of sinners. But I brought you out of it purely because of grace, and I'm bringing you to the promised land. So yes, I'm giving you duties to perform. They're duties that reflect the way in which I've designed you to live. But they're duties that will help you to live the good life. A life of glorifying me. A life of clarity. A life of intimacy with me and with other people. See, when we relate to God in the ways in which He has laid out in the Ten Commandments, we're just living out our design. We're living out our design. We're, we're putting the right gas in the right car. We're putting the stuff into our life that makes us work in the way that we're designed to work. This is the way that we've been created to live. We've been created to live a life of love and a life of faithfulness to the one who's created us for his glory and for our joy. He's the one that has set us free from self-destructive, enslaving, hopeless sin. That's where we're called to live. You cannot say, if you're honest, that you love God if you don't actually show it. If your life in no meaningful way reflects that you belong to Him, that doesn't conform to Him. So you have to stop lying to yourself if you believe that you can love God and just do whatever you please. Or if you give any any very little thought at all to actually loving God and following after God. I think there's another person who gets right at the heart of that idea. Another great theologian by the name of Taylor Swift. She wrote an excellent song entitled 15. And the chorus of that song goes, When you're 15, if somebody tells you they love you, you're going to believe them. But then she goes on to talk about her friend Abigail in this song and talks about how she got tied up with this guy who was chasing after her, whispering sweet nothings into her ear. But at the end of the day, all that guy wanted to do was use her. He just wanted to use her. He didn't really love her. He wanted to use her. And so she says, if you want to find out if he really loves you, look at his actions. Look at his integrity. Look at the way in which he behaves towards you and towards other people. Look at the way in which he gives up his own self-absorption for the sake of your own good. And friends, I think that's exactly the thrust of Scripture. That's the thrust of where God's going with the Ten Commandments. That's the thrust of the whole Bible. You see it in Ephesians 2, don't you? Paul lays out 
the most beautiful, succinct summary of the gospel that you can possibly find, where he says in Ephesians 2 that it is by grace that we have been saved, through faith, not by our works, lest any man can boast. That's the New Testament version of Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. We've been saved by grace. But then look at what he says right after that. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, the the gospel propels us to obedience. It propels us to faithfulness to God. And we see it again in Romans 12. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, do what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. In view of the mercy that all of us who believe and rest in Jesus Christ alone for salvation have received, we offer over our lives for His glory because it's also for our good. See, if you know Christ, one of the things you know about yourself is that at one point you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You weren't sick. You weren't just in bad, critical condition. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, without hope and without God in the world. And by His grace alone, He comes and He breathes new life into your dead souls and He gives you life and He releases you from slavery, from bondage, from eternal death, from eternal slavery. When Jesus comes to you in that way, He enables you to turn your back on your slave master called sin and enables you to embrace your liberator called Christ. And that means that sin is no longer your master. Christ is. And to the degree that Christ is your master, He sets you free. You know, I think personally knowing that at the level of our souls, is something that keeps the commandments from becoming just a cold, outward, rigid conformity to a bunch of rules. Knowing the grace that you've received in the gospel is exactly what propels you to obey Him, to follow Him. Knowing that His commands are not meant to rob you of your joy, but to give it to you. So let me just say two really quick things before we finish up this morning. Here's the first thing you need to see. It's that even though in the gospel you've been set free from slavery, everything that is within your body and soul is going to continue to try to pull you back into it all the time. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the Ten Commandments, try to obey them, and see if you last more than 15 minutes after this service keeping all of them. I promise you that in every way, all the time, you're going to be violating these commandments because it's part of your hardwiring. It's part of your sinful nature. You're going to be tempted and pulled back into it. In fact, do you know what many slaves did in America after the Emancipation Proclamation? They went right back and worked for the masters who so evilly dehumanized them and robbed them of their personhood because slavery was the only life they knew. Don't do that, my friends. Israel did that. Israel wanted to do that anyway. They were released from slavery. 
They were out in the wilderness and the conditions were hard and the temptations were fierce and they grumbled all the time and complained to Moses to send them back to Egypt where things were so much better than they were out in the wilderness. That was their besetting issue. And it's our besetting issue as well. That we want the same thing. We want to go back into slavery. But we have to remember that we're in the wilderness. We're not actually in the promised land yet. We're on our way, but we're not there. And that means that we're going to be tempted and pulled in every direction back into slavery. And when that happens, my friends, the challenge to you is to keep your eyes fixated on Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes fixated on what He has accomplished for you in the Gospel. Set your sights on His beauty and glory and grace and on the hope that you have of the promised land because He has loved you and given Himself for you that you might be set free. Here's the second and last thing I want you to see. When you look at the Ten Commandments, as I just made mention of, when you look at them, you're going to just find yourself to be a much, much, much more profound sinner than you ever thought that you were. Many of us believe that. In fact, a person is a fool who does not believe that he is a sinner. But we oftentimes believe it in the abstract and not in the concrete. We miss it in the specifics of our lives. And the Ten Commandments expose the specific areas, the most personal areas, where we have rebelled against God. And so the Ten Commandments show you, and this is the bad news moment of the day, that you are not basically a good person. But the good news moment of the day, it's the best news that you'll ever hear, and it's the second thing that you need to see, is that at every single point in which you failed, Christ has succeeded. Matthew 5, Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And that means that everybody who rests in Him alone has had the law fulfilled for them on the basis of what Jesus has done. Jesus has fulfilled that life for you at every point of your rebellion, at every point of your indifference, at every point where you have failed to do your duty and you've been careless and corrupt and you've stuck your finger in God's chest and said, I'm free to do what I want any old time, you can know that Jesus has fulfilled it for you. He has succeeded for you. He has accomplished the holiness that you failed to accomplish for yourself. And that is the greatest news that you could ever hear. See, all of us are 100% released by slavery, released from slavery on one condition and one condition only. And that is that we live perfectly. That we are perfectly obedient. But we failed. And the great hope that we have is not that we keep the commandments, but that Jesus has kept them for us. We're saved by works, but it's not our works that save us. It's Jesus' work that saves us. And friends, that's the grace that fuels your life to live a life that's holy and pleasing to God. And it's the hope that everyone has who believes. And if you don't believe, Consider that an invitation this morning to do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great, beautiful, challenging, convicting, and encouraging 
blessed word. We thank you that our life does not begin with our own inward strength to do the right thing and to do our duty, but it begins first and foremost with your grace to us in the gospel. Your grace is sufficient for us, for your power is made perfect in our weakness. May that fuel our hearts to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our joy. And we pray this all in the name of him who came such a distance for us, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.